the preaching of God's Word then is in Luke 17, and particularly at verses 20 and 21. Luke chapter 17, there at verses 20 and 21. So here then the Word of God, Luke 17, 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. These two verses for our consideration this morning, you'll notice that the theme carries on and Christ will address uh, various deceptions that will plague the time between His first and second coming, as well as the admonishing of men, women, and young people to turn unto the Lord now, lest they perish on that day. But as is so customary with Christ, He receives a challenge, and perhaps it comes, as you'll notice the language, verse 20, when He was demanded of the Pharisees, the Pharisees coming with some sense of pressing Him. They're searching Him. They're testing Him. They're saying, listen, you claim to be the King. Well, when is this kingdom going to come? They're putting Him, in their mind, on the defensive. They're attacking. They're pushing. They're pressing. And they're seeking, perhaps again, to catch Him in His words. And yet, so wise is Christ that He first doesn't take their bait, but second, doesn't leave this moment unimproved. He actually, in mercy, holds before them a redirection. Not, as it were, an evasion, but rather redirecting them to what is truly needing to be considered by them. They want to say, show us the signs that will testify that the kingdom of God is here. And Christ is saying that question is not only unfounded, but it is a distraction for you. You've seen this again and again already in this Gospel, and you see it in the other Gospels as well. Christ receives a question that those who are asking think is either the question to ask or is the question to catch Christ in His tracks. And yet Christ redirects their attention to what is truly of importance. Notice the question, when the Kingdom of God should come. And so, Give us the time. Give us the circumstances. Help us to realize what's going on. And doubtlessly, this is generated from their own study of God's Word. We sang in Psalm 72 of the coming of God's kingdom. And you think of this expression, the just shall flourish in his days. The righteous shall flourish. That's something that doubtlessly each of us long for. We long to see the flourishing of the just. We long to see righteousness erected, established, and advancing. And perhaps the Pharisees had some sense of that as well. They see the encroachments of the Roman Empire. They see the corruptions uh, all around them by the nations. And they're asking, when will it be that this will be cast off and put down and the kingdom of God shall flourish? It's a good question if rightly asked. But you'll notice Christ's response is, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, that is, with outward display. So you can think of the contrast here. 
when, for instance, one kingdom overtakes another, there's great fanfare, there's great attention. You can understand, of course, even in the Old Testament scriptures, this happens on occasion, that those who were uh, taken captive were openly defamed and even many times put to death. And there was the reestablishing of the new empire's laws and rule and reign, the colors of that empire, all of these things put up and established. You can think of this in some sense when there was the day of exploration, that what would happen is a nation would come to a so-called new place and they would plant their standard, their flag upon that place. And in some sense say, we're claiming this for this kingdom. There's an outward display of the same. It's an outward and open show of these things. Well, Christ is saying, the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God doesn't come with the fanfare and attention that the world so highly prizes. Now, what he's not saying is that there's no evidence of the kingdom of God coming, but what he's doing is he's correcting the misthought of the Pharisees. So perhaps in the Pharisees' mind, the thought is this. Look, we look around and we see the corruption of the Roman Empire. We see the standards of the Roman eagle. We see this and that and the other thing. We can't look anywhere without seeing the fact that we are a people, as it were, under the authority of a pagan empire. And so when is it going to be? If you're the Christ, if you're the king, when is this going to be overturned? When are we going to see them flee? When are we going to see, as it were, Jerusalem and Israel standing in an outward glory, a sovereign nation that others would acknowledge and recognize? If you're the king, tell us. We're waiting. Christ says it's not that way. You're fundamentally mistaken. Notice he says, verse 21, neither shall they say lo here or lo there. The point is, it's not as if others somewhere else will say, look here, here's the sign. Or another place, look there, there's the sign. And he says, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Or perhaps more accurately, it is among you. The point that Christ is making is, it's already here. You're misjudging if you're asking the question, when is the kingdom going to come? Because God's kingdom has already begun. The kingdom of God is here. Now, as you'll be aware, there is a realization throughout the Scripture that there's both the ability to say that something is already here and not yet fully here. And Christ will go on, and Lord willing, in the coming weeks, will address that as He talks of the fact that it's not all the way here yet. And so He addresses in verses 22 and following, the day between His first and His second coming. And so He's acknowledging there is something yet still more to come. But you've made a mistake if you think that's the only, as it were, thing to be expected. And so He's redirecting their attention not to the cataclysmic, Armageddon-like end times, but to the present breaking in and reclaiming of God a people for Himself. The kingdom of God is already here. It's already among you. Brethren, this is something that we need to come to terms with in our own day because there are those even who go by the name Christian who live as if the only expectation is the second coming of Christ. Now, 
we must nurture that desire and longing. John the Apostle, of course, says at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, when he hears Christ say, Behold, I come quickly. What does he say? He doesn't say, well, it's okay, you know, your kingdom's already begun. He says, even so, come quickly. There's an anticipation and a longing for the return of Christ. And this is something that if we lack, is a massive lacking in our souls. That we should not desire the full display of Christ's glory, the full conquering of His enemies and our enemies, the full provision of all that He's purchased for us, provided, handed over to us. If we lack that in our daily lives, we're lacking a significant aspect of the grace of God, something for which we ought to seek. However, there are some who act, or at least speak as if, that's the only thing that's to be sought. So, for instance, Christ teaches us to pray, among other things, Thy kingdom come. There are some who think the only aspect in that petition is Jesus Christ's return. Now, it is included in that, but as we know as we search the Scriptures, it's not only that. It's as Christ is saying, there is a coming of His kingdom now. There's a way in which He takes rebels and turns them into loving and loyal subjects. There's a way in which He turns the heart that loves itself above all else and justifies all manner of selfish sin as good and liberating and free and so on and actually renews them to see that there's a better way. There's the way that sees God as first and primary. A heart that gladly submits to His kingdom. And this is what we pray as well. That the kingdom of grace would not only come but flourish. And the kingdom of glory should come as well. Well, This is all bound up in what Christ is presenting to us. There's a correction to the Pharisees' misunderstanding. We can also discern that there's an encouragement. So, for instance, we remember this. God has given us His Word. He's given us His Word. His Word is meant to instruct us, to correct us, to mature us. And it may be that we have need to remember that the church is not a voluntary association of people, a club saying, you know what, let's get together and have a decent time or we'll focus on this. It's not a 501c3 that says, you know, here are what we've determined to be our identity, here's our vision, here's our mission, here's our objectives. It's always astonishing to me when a church puts up its mission statement. And we don't mean to criticize it fully, but there's a sense in which we ought to think, what do you mean our mission statement, our vision statement? You know, we ought to say not our mission statement, not our vision statement, but God's vision, God's mission. What is God set before us to do? There's fundamentally in us this sense of we've got our hands on it. It's ours to mold, make, observe, do, and so on. But in reality, we ought to remember this. The church is fundamentally a kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's not a voluntary situation. It's not something that one sort of voluntarily says, I'll come in when I want And if I want, I'll leave on my own terms. Rather, it's a kingdom wherein God claims a people, brings them into His kingdom, and then sets up, as it were, His throne to rule not only over them, as we'll see, 
but in and through them. So let's consider, among other things, firstly, what is this kingdom? What's the nature of God's kingdom? You'll notice the expression used twice here by uh, Christ in response to the question. They're asking, when shall the kingdom of God come? Christ in verse 20 says, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And in verse 21, he says, behold, the kingdom of God is within you or among you. Well, to understand what Christ's point is, we have to understand what's meant by this expression, kingdom of God. And just in those words themselves, there are simple yet clear ideas. Firstly, it is a kingdom which God governs. This is something that ought to be fundamental and clearly acknowledged. But notice the expression itself is not the kingdom of men. It's not the kingdom of this group of ruling people. It's not the kingdom of this generation or that generation. It's not the kingdom of elders. It's not the kingdom of others. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom which God brings forth. It's the kingdom over which God reigns. It's something that in our day we need to emphasize because our culture is increasingly emphasizing a different theme. And so it's true culturally outside of the church, the idea that really what's important is what you want. How do you feel? What do you think? What's your preference? What's your ideas? We get this from day one in America. And so parents go through the grocery store and they see 500 different choices of baby food, baby formula, baby diapers, everything else. And we don't mean to say that that's bad, but we do mean to say there's a subtle thing that starts to grip us. I've got the choice. It's my determination. We get hungry, perhaps we're on the road, we pull over at a fast food restaurant, and we have all sorts of choices. And then we say, well, I see that you have this, can you make it this way or that way? You go to a coffee shop, and it can be maddening how particular people request their particular drink. This, not that way, not with this milk, not with that milk, not with this sugar, not with that sugar. All of these things. The point is this. Our culture in particular has catered to this thought that you are your own master. But it's really not peculiar to our culture. Because embedded in the heart of fallen man is this thought that I, even if I don't say it in so many words, I am God. I get to make up the rules that I want. I get to determine what is right. I get to determine what is wrong. Now, it may be in different molds and makings. And so, for instance, in our culture, it's the voice of the people. The voice of the people get to determine what's right, what's wrong. You hear this expression, which is a joke today, because people who are for the murdering of children say things like this, be on the right side of history. What absurdity. Be on the right side of history, and by that they mean give the right of people to kill babies? Be on the right side of history? Let men defame themselves? This is not the right side of history. And we cringe at the expression when it's spoken in that way because we know there's a day coming when Christ shall return and those who in their pride and arrogance have said, be on the right side of history, shall find themselves on the wrong side of the king. That's a very searching thought. But here's the point. Much in our world today is 
particularly against the notion that there is a sovereign God, a God who is over all things. Not only against the notion of his sovereign providence, which there is uh, hatred for, but the fact that he is sovereign in determining what is right and what is wrong, that he governs. Well, here's the thing. The church is the manifestation not only of his authority, but of a willing people subjected to him. It's not a kingdom of slaves who with terror are ruled, as we'll see, but it is a kingdom of grace making a rebellious people a lovingly loyal people. But in that uh, loyalty, they acknowledge Christ is king. Not what we think, but what He says. So our constitution begins with we the people. That's not the constitution of the church. The constitution of the church begins with Christ the King. Whatever may be right to say among civil society, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not we the people. It's Jesus Christ the King of glory. So the kingdom of God is that which is ruled by God. He is supreme. He bears all authority. But further, we can say, as the Scriptures open to us, what is God's kingdom? It's a kingdom wherein God reclaims rebels. This is important. It's not a kingdom where He finds, as it were, a right people already. He comes to a whole scene of absolute rebellion. So in other words, think of it this way. In military action, there may be a unit that's caught by the enemy and the special force then goes to reclaim those people who are theirs, right? They're loyal to this military and so on. That's not the way that God's kingdom goes. God has marked out His people and it's those people whom He will reclaim But it's not as if they're behind enemy lines and saying, we're a people ready to be reclaimed. They walk in darkness. They walk in sin. They stand in need of a great change. Well, notice how Christ is presented in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. When it is at the beginning of His ministry, as Mark records it, He goes about, Mark chapter 1, in summary fashion, testifying in this way. Verse 14, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching what? The Gospel. But you see further, preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. The good news of God's Kingdom. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the Kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the Gospel. Do you see the message? He doesn't come to people and saying, you know, here are my terms, let's talk and bargain. He comes as one bearing authority and saying, here's the deal. The kingdom of God is here. And I'm proclaiming you good news. You're rebels deserving judgment. You deserve what's far worse than mere earthly capital punishment. You deserve the torment of hell for rebelling against such a good and glorious God. But here's good news. I come to you and I say, repent and believe the Gospel and you'll be brought into this kingdom. You see what's going on is Christ is going to 
sinners, and he's calling them unto life. He's calling them from their rebellion unto their subduing by grace to align again with God. And this, of course, makes sense when we step back and survey the whole of history as recorded in the Bible. Here at the beginning of time, of course, God makes man, and they're upright. Adam and Eve are those who are walking in fellowship with God. And what an expression that is used there after they've sinned, of course. But the Lord draws near, the voice of God walking in the midst of the garden. And the image is as if it's something that was normal and natural for them to experience. And yet here's the sign that something has gone way off. Instead of now saying, oh, it's God, they now flee from God, right? Here's the sign of what sin does. Sin distances us from God because we've rebelled against God. There are searching expressions. For instance, if you read in the book of Nahum, Nineveh is set up as this adulterous and prostituting woman. And it says at the end, when judgment comes, that her nakedness will be displayed to all of her lovers and shame shall consume her. Think of that for a moment. That which satisfied her, that which brought pleasure to her and brought pleasure to others, will be turned on the last day to be shown to be the shame that it is. Right now, there is a world wherein people think true joy, true happiness, laughter and cunning ways is where I find pleasure. But the last day will come And all wherein they laughed and joked and thought it was fun, all of the delights that they experienced will be shown for what it really is. And they will be engulfed with unending shame and sorrow where the worm dies not and their torment lasts forever. Well, here's what is good. Christ comes and says before that day, repent, believe the Gospel, and be brought into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of grace now unto glory to come. It's wherein God, through Christ, reclaims sinners. It's also a kingdom, we can note this, that is advanced among men only by grace. It's not by men's wisdom and men's efforts and men's standard bearing. It is by the Lord God ministering in grace to his people. So you'll notice earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, a very memorable passage. Christ is in the synagogue, verse 16. Verse 17, he opens the book of of Isaiah, and he reads, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me. So Christ is reading this from Isaiah, And notice what he's been anointed to do. To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closes the book, verse 20, and he begins to say, which is Luke's way of saying his sermon begins, and it begins with, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, there's tremendous insight here. The people who should become subjects of His kingdom by the experience of grace, marked out certainly from eternity past, are those people who will be brought in by the work and ministry 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. So all this nonsense today about people saying, well, you know, of course, Christ is a way. You know, but how narrow-minded, how bigoted to say, like, Christ is the only way, but there's so many others who are lawful ways. Brethren, whatever else that is, it is an abject denial of the truth. It may comfort sinners in their rebellion, but on the last day, it will fly in the face of what is clearly manifested that there is but one and one only who was anointed by God, who was set out to be the Savior of sinners. As Christ Himself says, think of this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Christ is the one way of entrance into this kingdom. We saw this in John, of course, chapter 3. But notice, people are brought into the kingdom by the work of Christ. It's by His gracious work. It's not as if those who are blind somehow work up the ability to give themselves sight. It's not self-realization. It's not Eastern mysticism. It's not some nonsense of meditation of these mystic ways. It is by the gracious work of Christ breaking in among rebels and broken and bruised ones, dead ones, giving them life, opening their eyes, healing their wounds, and making them to flourish in the kingdom of God. So for a moment, think of this. If you stand as a loyal subject of Christ and His kingdom, whatever your imperfections, whatever your sins that remain, if you are sincerely trusting in Christ, you ought to remember this. And it ought to be the theme of your praise constantly. The only reason you're in that kingdom is because Christ has pursued you. Now, he may have employed various means. He may have used faithful parents. He may have used faithful pastors. He may, in his sovereignty, have used some, as we would say, you know, chance reading of God's word, but not chance in God's economy. God pursues us by Christ, pursues us, and brings us in. This kingdom is that which is governed by God, reclaiming sinners and doing so by the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, consider then the coming of this kingdom. We can see already several aspects of it, but notice Christ says, listen, the kingdom of God is among you. It's already here. I don't have to tell you when it's going to come. I need to point out to you that it has already come. Not in its full perfection, which awaits the last day, but in its reality right now. Thus, it is in you, or it is among you. And so, of course, as we read in Luke 4, Christ is anointed to preach the gospel. We read in Mark chapter 1, Christ goes forth and preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel that they would be brought in. Christ sits down with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is on his own sort of way, and he's saying, you know, you could not be uh, doing what you're doing except you are sent of God. And Christ, again, not evading that question, but turning Nicodemus' attention to what is most pressing, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the point. The coming of God's kingdom in, these, in this world as it is, by His grace, comes by the ministry of Christ. It comes both by His personal ministry, as recorded in the Gospel history, but also by His powerful ministry 
through his appointed means today. And so what is it Christ did when he's announcing the kingdom of God? He doesn't have, as it were, a small group study. He doesn't say, you know, let's get together and have coffee and whatever. He goes forth, and the word is a high word. He goes forth heralding, announcing, proclaiming the truth. He's a messenger, preaching. He doesn't say, let's sit down and sort of think about this. You know, you tell me your insight, I'll tell you my insight, and all this kind of stuff. He comes as one bearing authority and says, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This punches every sinner squarely in the face. It lays them low. It harasses them. Not because it itself is sinful or wrong or uncaring or whatever else the sinner wants to say, but because it puts the finger on the very essence of the nature of rebellion. The sinner is happy to acknowledge that could be a way, but wants its own ways as well. Well, you know, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, that way works for you. And maybe it worked for the church for hundreds, even thousands of years before, but we've matured. I mean, we're the people today, we understand more science has advanced and you know, our understanding of society has advanced and culture and all these things. You know, so yeah, I get it, that works for you and maybe it works for people today, but really there are other ways. See, here's the problem with that. It's not about grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. It's not about this generation, that generation, our generation. It's about how is it that God brings his kingdom? He doesn't bring it by your insights. He doesn't bring it by my insights. He brings it by the ministry of Christ. And so if ever you and I are to be brought to enjoy the kingdom of God, it is as we diligently attend upon his ministry. How do you know his ministry? You know, people say things like this. It's astonishing when it comes from the mouth of a professed Christian. Things like this. Well, I like to think of Christ as this. I like to think of God's kingdom in this way. Well, if what follows after that is anything but what God has said about Christ, about what God has said about His kingdom, all that is, is a subtle way to say, I have a different thought than God gives. And whatever that thought is, however many people can be found to support it, however many thumbs up and likes it can uh, garner, is with the massive rejection of God's thought on the point. In other words, if our thinking about Christ in this way, and our thinking about His kingdom in that way, and our thinking about God in this way is opposite of, or contrary to, or in addition to what God has said on the matter, God disapproves of it. Because it's false. It's wrong. But when Christ comes and proclaims the kingdom of God, He's bringing, as it were, the reality of God Himself. Think of it this way, just in civil ways. You know, in our nation, we've got all sorts of confusion about, you know, well, I understand America to stand for this, and I understand America to stand for that. Set all of that aside for a moment. Go back to older days when there was a king. Okay, not in America, but in other nations. And the king was not just, as it were, a figurehead, but actually what he said was done. So you can think, for instance, in the ancient Near East, you have this with Cyrus, and you have this with Nebuchadnezzar. 
the law of the Medes and the Persians. Remember, these kinds of things. Now, you can be a subject in one of those kingdoms, and you can hear what the king or emperor says, and if you have the audacity to say, well, I get what King Cyrus is saying, but I like to think of Persia in this way, or I understand what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, but, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is not my king. He's not the one I've chosen, and I disagree with him. If you had the audacity to say that, whether right or wrong for that point, you would suffer the wrath of the king because you've withstood the one who bears authority. Now, we go then into the realm of God's kingdom. And we can remove instantly all the things of petty selfishness and wicked thoughts and, you know, these sort of uh, selfish rules and, you know, quickly put together rushed decisions. None of that applies to God, of course, because he's wise, eternal, good, just, holy, loving, merciful, gracious. Everything he says is good. Everything he commands is right. Everything he forbids is not only wrong, but ultimately hurtful for us. Could you imagine finding a child with a sharp instrument and jamming it into their hand? And you rush to them and say, stop doing that. And they look at you with the utmost glee and say, but I like it. No parent would say, well, if you like it, keep doing it. They take all the effort they could to restrain that child and say, you're injuring yourself. Well, here's the point. The world right now is stabbing its soul over and over. And the proclamation of Christ says, repent. And the world's answer is this, but I like it. I like injuring, killing, putting myself to eternal death. I love it. And this is what Christ confirms in John 3. You know, men love darkness rather than light. If ever they are to be brought into God's kingdom, it will only be as they receive the ministry of Christ. Because only Christ is authorized of God. The Spirit hath anointed me. Only Christ has the wisdom to address us. Only Christ has the love to address us. Only Christ has provided the way of entrance for anyone into the kingdom of God. So you go back to John 3, except a man is born again, he cannot enter or see or enter the kingdom of God. But then he goes on and he addresses his death. And he says, listen, whosoever believes upon me shall have everlasting life. What's he saying? I am the way of entrance. You first have to be reborn in order to see the door. Could you imagine being blind, let outside of a kingdom, and you have to get in that, there's one door, and you have to find first off where the wall is, and then try and find where the door is. Well, Christ says, you know what, to enter God's kingdom, first you have to have your eyes opened. But then you have to enter in through the door. It does us no good to say, well, I see, you know, the way of entrance is Christ, but I'm not going to go in. Christ is saying, you must receive me. You must embrace me. In other words, the coming of God's kingdom is by and through the ministry of Christ. But it's also, and related to this, it's by Christ's power. There's an insight given earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, when Christ is accused of doing things by Beelzebub, Satan. And Christ addresses this 
And he says in verse 20 of Luke 11, he says, If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Now, fundamental to this, setting aside the fact of miracles for a moment, is that it is as he exercises his power that that which has bondaged men is overcome. This is related, of course, to the fact that there is the general call of the gospel that goes outward to all sorts of people. And yet, it comes with power only unto the elect. And so you see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when Paul says, knowing your election of God. Well, how did he know that? Because when the word came to you, it didn't come in word only, as it has to multitudes. It came with power and in the Holy Ghost, so that you trusted, you believed, you turned from idols unto God. Right? There was a change that was brought. How did that come to pass? It was by the power of Christ being exercised by the means. This is why even in Christian churches, there can be people who are born, live, and die in the church, hearing the gospel in its purity, and never be saved. Because though there's rebellion and thus sin to be charged against the person, yet what's not happened is Christ's power has not so worked to draw them unto himself. And so we see, of course, the privilege we have of being among Christ's ministry as his word goes forth. But we also see how desperate our situation is that we are beholden to Christ to exercise his grace. Now quickly, the mistake then that is regarding God's kingdom is when he says it comes not by observation, not by outward display. Pharisees were imagining that they see the same kind of thing take place as they see when there's civil upheaval, civil revolt, a new government established. Christ says it's not that way. He's not saying there's no change that overtakes a person. But he's saying if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to change what you're looking for. It doesn't come in the outward display of what you think. It's not by, as it were, you know, this Christian society and this Christian uh, flag and all these sorts of things. Of course, there are aspects in which as God's kingdom advances, there are things that will be transformed. But he's saying fundamentally, it is that which comes by me, transforming a heart and bringing them to be loyal subjects of the Lord God. So you remember Ezekiel 36, as we read earlier. I will give them, give you, a new heart. I will write my law upon your heart. Right? What's he saying? I'm going to make you a loyal and loving subject to me. So we banish uh, all thought of like the kingdom of God is this iron-fisted, you know, gripping someone by the neck and throwing their face into something that they hate. And instead what we see is though there is force, there is gracious force drawing men and making their wills to be renewed so that it's not this gripping them by the scruff of the neck and throwing them into something that they despise, but it's the loving embrace of one out of hell, out of damnation, and putting them on to where true beauty, true love, true delight is found. And so this can take place in someone who's poor, right? So in other words, we think, well, if God's kingdom is going to come, it's going to upend society, and the poor are going to be rich in outward ways. 
But here's the kingdom of God. A poor person who has nothing in this world is made to trust in Christ and to love God. There's the kingdom of God. This person who is in great illness and great distress is converted and brought to Christ so their illness eventually takes them. Yet there's the kingdom of God because they're brought to trust in Christ and bow the knee to Christ and receive eternal life and have the hope of glory to come. There's a widow who's in all sorts of distress who has no, it seems, provision to their outward concern. And yet they're brought to rely upon Christ. They serve Christ. Remember the widow who gave all that she had two mites. And Christ says, she's given more than everyone else. There's the kingdom of God. She's serving God. She's loving God. She's trusting God. I have nothing else to give. Everything I give, I provide to the service of God. There's the kingdom of God. All the people that are sitting there at the temple at that time paid no attention to that widow except the king. See that? The king sees it. She's not going to some distant land and doing some amazing thing by our estimation. She's not busy with all sorts of praise by people and getting puffed up and all these things as we would by our estimation. She's humbly, loyally, loving, serving the king in common ways. And the king takes notice and says, there's the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Christ says? On the last day there will be those, and he says such a thing that grips us, not even a cup of cold water given in my name shall go unforgotten. He sees the things that the world doesn't see. Because what he sees is the subjection of love and faith and obedience unto God. And he remembers that. Well, brethren, as we close, here is our great need. We would not get lost with all the questions about, well, when, what time, and so on. There are things, as we'll see, that Christ does provide us to think on, but all of it is more focused upon our souls submitting unto the Lord, waiting upon Him, serving Him. Where we need to focus is where Christ would have us focus. And we can ask the question for a moment, am I embracing this kingdom? Now, all of us will want to say implicitly, well, of course I am. You know, would someone call me a rebel? Well, the question has to go more than that and ask the question, for instance, am I taking hold of Christ? Not only do I come to church, not only do I read the Bible, but am I trusting Christ? And if I say yes, well, then there will be evidence of that little by little. There will be evidence of that in the way that I submit myself to Christ. My speech, to my spouse, to my children, to others. What I speak about, how I speak about others. My time, how I spend it, and so on. My love to the brethren, my love to God. All of these things will increasingly be transformed so that the image of the king is more fully realized in us. Because here's the beauty of his kingdom. He who is holy and beautiful in his holiness beautifies his saints in holiness. And so we can see little by little the increase of his kingdom in us. So if we say, yes, I'm in his kingdom, we can then ask, as John raises, if I say I know him and yet do not keep his commandments, I'm a liar. 
I can say all I want till I'm blue in the face, as we say. I can contend against this and that and the other thing and say, don't you dare tell me I'm not a Christian. But if I'm rebelling against God's commandments, I've lost the ability with any authenticity to say, I am his subject. It doesn't mean that sin itself discredits instantly because, of course, as John will say as well in that epistle, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. The truth is not in us. But what sin will do in the believer is humble them and bring them again to Christ to turn from their sin, being pardoned and renewed. So we can ask ourselves, am I submitting to Christ? Brethren, those of you who are, consider for a moment the tremendous privilege, not only that the kingdom is proclaimed to you, but even right now, here's the point that Christ is making to his people. Whatever else the world thinks of you, however set aside you are, however discredited you are by the world, however mistreated by the world, misunderstood by the world, hated by the world, persecuted by the world, however mocked by the world, however injured by the world, yet Christ is saying, you're in my kingdom. You're mine. You belong to me. This is what then makes sense of all of what Christ says elsewhere. And the Bible says elsewhere. Remember when Christ stops Saul of Tarsus and he says, I am the Lord Jesus whom you persecute? Do you remember that? Well, it's not as if Paul was literally going after the incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ and persecuting him. But here's the point. A persecution that falls against Christ's kingdom is a persecution against Christ the King. Think of this for a moment. If some nation fired off a missile and it landed in no man's land somewhere in the West where no one lives, and the Congress and the President and everybody in the whole nation says, that's it, time for war, and the person who fired the missile said, listen, I didn't hit your President, I didn't hit your Congress, I just fired it into your territory. The United States would rise up and say, and that act is against our nation. This is what Christ says when persecution falls out against His people. He says, that act is against me. Brother, think of that for a moment. Christ is not untouched by the feeling of your infirmities. He knows these things. And He loves as a loving King, as a loyal and loving King, He loves His people even in their affliction. And so as Satan comes to us and says, listen, if you were in God's kingdom, things would be far different. You'd be flourishing. Your bank account would be full. Friendships would be overwhelming. All of these things would be in place. All of that is a lie. If you were in God's kingdom, your marriage would be perfect. Nope, it's not the case. Now, by God's grace, He can renew those things, transform those things. But here's the point. In this life, presently, before the coming of Christ, as we'll see, There are many trials, many hardships, many sufferings, many evils, many difficulties. And yet we live not by sight. We live by faith. In whom? In the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. And we take Him at His word. Think for a moment that Christ has pursued you, believer. And He said, instead of standing in your rebellion, I'm taking you unto Myself. That though in this life right now you might suffer, there's a life to come where you'll know nothing but glory. That's yours. And so whereas we await the coming of the glorious kingdom of Christ, we don't await it as if something 
phenomenally or absolutely different. What we're waiting is for that which we know by faith now to break forth into sight in time to come. The Christ we love now not seeing him, we look forward to the day when we shall see him. It's not a different Christ. It's not a different kingdom. It's a fuller manifestation of what is already yours. Christ is yours. His kingdom is yours. You are already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And brethren, if that's the case, which it is, how ought we to love that King who has rescued us? How ought we to serve that King who has served us? How ought we to adore that King who has given His life for us that we would so live, so uh, speak, so act as those who are loved by none less than the Son of God against whom we've sinned, but by His grace who has saved us and brought us into an everlasting fellowship to enjoy Him now and forever. Would you stand with me then for prayer?